Hey, hot cakes. Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we examine the climate crisis and all the ways we're talking and not talking about it. I'm Mariana Yves Heckler. And I'm Amy Westervelt. Today, we're talking about something that's on everyone's mind, political instability. (laughs) And specifically how climate change intersects with and intensifies it. Exactly. And we're joined this episode by Justin Worland, who is the lead environmental and climate reporter at uh, Time Magazine. Um, which is just like a magazine that my mother loves and adores and swears if she reads Time Magazine, she then reads everything in the world um, and knows everything that is happening ever. So I'm very excited to have him on the show. Yeah, yeah. He's great. I think his reporting in general is really, really great. And he talked uh, quite a bit about how these issues of political instability and climate intersect. And he explained for us what an Amy Coney Barrett confirmation might mean for climate policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we dug into a little bit more about how climate change increases and exacerbates police violence. Because, of course, it does. exacerbates all violence. Who's not more irritable when they're hot and bothered? So, yeah, it was really great to dig into that with them. Um, If you want the links to the articles we talk about in here, you should make sure that you subscribe to our newsletter. And if you want some extra amazing premium content, um, you can subscribe for just $7 a month. That's right. And we also have a free version if $7 a month feels like a stretch right now. We get it. There will be more details in the show notes on how to find that. And special request Please go leave us a review in Apple Podcasts if you have not already done that. Or wherever you're listening, but the Apple Podcast ones, I don't know, seem to actually matter more. It's how people find us. Yeah. It's really easy. Just, like, go in there. Give us a little five stars. We'll just, like, say you love it. You don't really need to think about it that much. If you have a negative review, uh, we have another system for that, and we'll talk about that at the end of the show. Yeah. It's time to talk about climate. All right, Justin Worland, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. So first things first, how did you get into journalism and specifically into climate journalism? Yeah, um, so I, I, I got into journalism really, like in college, I kind of fell in love with the school paper and was just like that. I always joke like the school paper was my second major or like really my major. Um, Where'd you go to school? I went to Harvard. Um, oh. So Harvard Crimson is the school paper. Yeah, I mean, so I did that, and I and then I so I knew I wanted to go into journalism. Uh, did some internships. Wound up at Time doing like breaking news. It was very sort of um, you know entry level stuff. And about five years, a little more than five years ago, this opportunity came to do the climate beat and. Honestly, I was like, what's this all about? I don't really know. And sort of after, you know, like a little trial period, realized like, whoa, this is actually the most important issue and it's mm-hmm. really not being covered mm-hmm. uh, enough or or in some ways, you know, right. And so I mm-hmm. sort of fell in love with it. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's been, I guess, five and a half years. Do you remember the moment where you were like, oh, wait a minute, there's a lot here? I mean, I think it definitely was like an evolution, but uh, like, I don't know if there was like a, like one exact moment, but um, I mean, I think it was just sort of 
delving off into rabbit holes and seeing the you know implications of of climate change for these areas that certainly weren't what I had you know been accustomed to reading about. So I don't I mean I don't know if there's like a if like there's like a definitive moment. Yeah, you mentioned there sometimes not being covered right. If you could change one thing or if it's you know two or three that's fine too about the way that we talk about climate in the mainstream discourse or in the media, what would it be? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, it's right. You're, you're right to say like two or three or like, yeah. you know, or like 10, um, I don't know, yeah. 10 or 11. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got time. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, so there's like a few things. One is like, I'm increasingly impressed. And I think people who cover climate and know it well, like do a good job at doing that. I think the challenge of course comes when, you know, you look at like the presidential debates or any time when somebody who doesn't really know their stuff like starts to or needs to talk about climate. And so I, I you know, you get you get the, the the bigger challenges. I think the one, if I had to pick one, is the framing of climate change, addressing climate change as like, what do you have to give up? Um, and I think this is like something that I see even from you know mainstream journalists who should know better, who will frame a question about, you know, well, it's like, Mm -hmm. how much will it cost? Mm -hmm. How much should we be willing to sacrifice? And it just, I mean, you, like, I think everybody who listens to this podcast probably knows, like, why that's, like, troubling on, like, so Mm -hmm. many levels. Um, But it's still, I think, what a lot of people think. And I think even, like, I think even some, you know, people who mean well, Democratic politicians sometimes will slip into a sort of, like, you know, we don't we don't want to give anything up. Sort of like language about it. Yeah, that's my yeah. that's my one thing. Yeah, like how they don't want to give up fracking. Right. <laughs> well, like, fracking is a prime example where it's it's you know I understand the sort of messaging like you don't want to talk about losing fracking jobs. Okay, but like maybe talk about the opportunities that are created. Uh, you know, and if we do move away from from fracking, right? Like, don't frame it about giving up fracking. Talking of talk about like yeah, we'll have cleaner water and right. there's opportunities for new industries and new jobs and right and yeah so i think that's that is a good example my most recent rant on fracking has been like i just don't understand why politicians in particular when they're asked about that don't come back immediately and say fracking companies are laying people off right and left what are you talking about they're all going bankrupt they've never made money the thing i always want to know like why don't they come back with this like we're talking about saving lives here Like, this isn't about what's to be, you know, gained in the GDP. We're talking about, like, human beings' lives. So, like, how hard would it be to come back with, like, this is killing people and it's going to kill a lot more people? Um, Anyway, I could go on that rant forever. (laughs) No, I mean, I I think that's that's definitely right. But I I also think, like, I I wrote a story in the spring about cost-benefit analysis, which is, like, a, a thing that, you know, why do we conduct a cost-benefit analysis when it comes to saving lives? Like that's a whole different mm-hmm. debate. Like even if you accept the premise that it's all about GDP, like we should still be doing a lot of the things that you know that that we're talking about purely on the basis of saving lives. Right. So you know, I think it's like important to make that argument on all levels. Exactly. Exactly. You know what's crazy about that too? There was that. There was a story. I mean like way back 20, 30 years, uh, that was like a big scandal when GM was caught 
basically making this calculation in like a spreadsheet. They were calculating how much money they would lose from a massive recall for like a safety flaw that they knew existed versus how many people would die. And they made the call that it would cost them less to pay out insurance claims from people dying than to do this recall. What the fuck? That's kind of what we're doing at a massive scale. <laughs> yeah. See, this is what I love about doing a, a podcast with Amy. She just like knows that shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a good example, though, really. Yeah. 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 One of the things we've learned the most from doing Hot Take for about a year now is how quickly the climate story has changed in the past like four years, really the past two years. Um, so are there any interesting emerging things that you've noticed in the ways that we talk about climate change? Yeah, I mean, I think one, like just this, I mean, when I took on this beat, like, you know, five and a half years ago is not that long ago. Um, I mean, just the, the sort of the volume and attention, like level of concern that I think it's gotten is, I think, the first thing. But I, I think the other thing is just, you know, talking about it as an inter intersectional issue. And, mm -hmm. I, and I mean that, like, in really every respect. And I, I think there's a growing recognition that climate change, climate policy, climate activism is not just about like, you know, emissions and even like emissions and sea level rise, that it's actually about literally everything. I think that that's something that, you know, most people would not have understood uh, five years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I don't, I mean, I don't know that most people understand it now, but, but I think that people who pay attention definitely are, are increasingly aware of that. So I think that, I mean, that's a huge thing. And there's so many reasons from that, for that, obviously, like the activism with Green mm -hmm. New Deal, et cetera, is a big part of it. But I think there are a lot of, a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Justin, what are you reading these days? And what, is there anything that you read on a regular basis to kind of stay up on these things or that, you know, a particular writer that you like on climate? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I try. So I think a few things I would say I have, I don't know, I subscribe to like, I don't know, 20 newsletters. It's there's so Which many... one's your favorite? And there's a right answer. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course, yours is my, my favorite. I should probably take a step back and say this is a good time to plug my own newsletter. Which is called 1.5 and you can like Google it and find it 1.5 times. So please subscribe. But, I, but really, I don't know. I think one thing that I've focused my reading on or tried to focus my reading on is you know, as I said, like thinking about climate as an intersectional issue. And so like trying not, I mean, there are a lot of great people writing about climate, but trying not to just read about climate, but actually just trying to like read the news, you know, anything and everything and sort of trying to find those like connections that maybe people aren't thinking about because, yeah. you know, climate, I mean, for a long time, like the climate reporter, like, you know, had a lot of work to do writing about climate reports and like all <laughs> right. the different climate things um, that are happening. And like, so one thing that I really, yeah, like I, I try to do is like, okay, let me just read the newspaper. Let me read the whole newspaper and see where are the climate stories that people are totally missing that angle. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's like a very broad like answer, but like, I, I, I don't know. I think it's important.
reporter at Time Magazine, which is like very, very, very dear in my family. It's the only magazine that my mother subscribes to. So I have a lot of questions for you. Okay. One, what dog always knows the time? God, dog always, I am. Uh, you can I ask know. Amy for help. Okay, Amy, can I get a hint? <laughs> oh my God. Um, I feel like it's like, it's funny that you can ask me for help too, because I'm also very bad at these. Uh, yeah, no, it's not really meant to help. Not actually I'm actually helpful. not good at these, which is why I always <laughs> take the upper hand. <laughs> I have no idea. What? What? A watchdog. Oh, God. Yeah, Come on. Okay. We should have yeah. got that. Yeah, that was yeah. an easy one. You started easy and didn't, I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's plenty to go. Don't worry. They're all about time. Uh, so if you thought from that setup, I was actually going to ask you about Time Magazine. Think a fucking gin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, why did the man put a clock under his desk? Clock under his desk. Want a hit? Yeah. What do you do on your desk? You work, right? right? Work. Mm -hmm. You put a clock under it. Uh, to work overtime? There you go! Yes! I got one! <laughs> okay, okay. Got it. <laughs> so there's hope for you, Justin, is what that says. <laughs> This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, four zero, 40%. Go to slash drilled. That's E A R T H B R E E Z E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Okay, so Justin, the main reason we wanted to have you on um, is to talk about climate change and political 
destabilization, which is something you've written a bit about in Time. Um, so we have an excerpt from an article you wrote called How Climate Change Feeds Political Instability, and we'd love it if you could read us that quick two paragraphs. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's change play in our current political instability. It's a controversial question. For years, many politicians and commentators shuddered when scientists or climate activists discussed climate change in relation to individual storms or wildfires, accusing them of politicizing disaster. And in those cases, the link to climate change was relatively straightforward. The evidence connecting climate change and political stability has been less obvious, but is becoming increasingly impossible to ignore. Warmer temperatures and extreme weather exacerbate social stress and worsen economic outcomes. These in turn affect political behavior. A landmark 2013 paper in the journal Science found that a change in temperature of one standard deviation was associated with a 2.3% increase in interpersonal conflict rates and a 13.2% increase in the rate of intergroup conflict. By 2050, temperatures are expected to rise by two standard deviations in most places across the globe and by as much as four standard deviations in some places. In these tumultuous times, both politically and climactically, there are several key factors of human behavior to consider. Research has shown that warm temperatures increase the odds of violent interpersonal interactions. Cities see spikes in violent crime and police are more likely to use extreme force and ex uh, use force in extreme heat. Studies have also found that people dealing with extreme heat are more likely to distrust outsiders. And research has shown that challenging weather shapes political decisions. When and this is a quote here, uh, when people are uncomfortable, weather explains some of that, uh, says Cohen, it's Alexander Cohen. Uh, it, and to continue the quote, it can explain how they respond to public opinion surveys. Uh, we know that it affects how they vote or if they vote at all. The thing I found most interesting about it was kind of the first thing you said was that it's a controversial question. And i like, I understand that it is a controversial question to a lot of people, but I just don't understand how, you know? Like, if you take the whole world and make it unstable, of course, every system that operates on top of it is going to become unstable too, right? It's like trying to write in your journal while the subway's moving. Like, you can't. You're not going to be able to do it. I know. It's super weird, too, because, like, nobody questions you know, the fact that daily life gets harder when there's an extreme weather event, for example, <laughs> like that's uncontroversial. So I don't understand why the idea that, you know, more and more extreme heat or hurricanes or fires or storms or whatever is going to make things less stable is, um, is not patently obvious. I just, yeah. Right. Like, of course it is. So Justin, how did you um, come to write this piece? Yeah, I mean, I was just so I this was for this originally was in my newsletter that I mentioned earlier, where I tried to just write about the news of the week and find the climate hook. And this was, you know, I mean, it was one of the many weeks in the last several months where everything just felt totally insane. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so, you know, I just I, I was familiar with the literature on climate and political instability. Um, and I just thought, you know, it's a good time to sort of just go through it and review it for any readers who aren't. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like one of those things, too, where you, you can sort of pick apart, like a lot of the literature is on the developing world, places outside of the U.S., but 
I just felt also, you know, given the storms that were, you know, in the Gulf, uh, given the wildfires, given mm-hmm. some of the flooding in the Midwest, I, I just felt like, you know what, maybe this is like a time when people will actually really get it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. to your point earlier, like, why is this controversial? I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, I think it shouldn't be controversial, but mm-hmm. um, I feel like a lot of it is that people just like, they don't, they can't, it seems too abstract. Um, and so I, I just felt like, well, this is a moment where you can literally see it. Like you can literally yeah. see the flooding and uh, the wildfires, et cetera. So it mm-hmm. just seemed like the right moment to sort of um, elevate that literature. You know, I, I, I think it might be because people are, it scares people. Um, it is terrifying, right? And so people are like, it can't possibly be that bad. Like that cognitive dissonance kind of comes back. Um, I don't know if y'all used to have this experience, but I know I did like, before 2016, whenever I would try to talk about climate to people, like they would really shut down and get really defensive and be like, it can't possibly be that bad. If it is that bad, somebody's working on a solution. Nobody would ever let it get that bad. And it would get really mad at me about it. Um, And I feel like that still happens now when you try to make the social consequences of it clear to people. Yeah, that, yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, and, and, and like in a way it threatens, I mean, just understanding that threatens the way that we understand and engage in our world. So like, that's, I, I mean, I can get why that's the reaction, even though that's like not a, a smart reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the same article, you talk about how increased heat affects police violence. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, so, I mean, I, I refer to a study um, in this in this piece uh, but I mean, it basically, you know, I mean, you could take police out of it for a minute and you think about it when mm-hmm. it's really hot and you're outside and you're kind of agitated, like, you know, you or me or any like person is more likely to make a rash decision. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And the same goes for police. And, you know, and there's literature on this. It shows that, you know, police are more likely to pull that trigger when they mm-hmm. feel agitated and extreme heat. Um, right. and it's, it, it's interesting too. I, I just, as a, like a, a sort of aside, this isn't in the piece, but I went to this focus group in this year, but before COVID in February, it, w- it was sort of a mix of black voters in Philadelphia. And th- it was like, they, they sort of were talked through like the, you know, what different thought, different parts of, of a climate. And, and most people walked in like without really having much thought about climate change. But it was so interesting to see like people come to the conclusion like on their own that like, what do you anticipate if there are more hot days? And they're like, you know, tougher times with police, tougher times in the streets. It's just like a thing that people intuitively get, even though, and and of course there's this robust literature to support that. So, um, but I I just, I was, it's amazing how um, like people experience this already. Right. Like if you look up the temperatures of any major day of political upheaval, it was always hot as balls. Like Bastille Day was super fucking hot. Um, Like (laughs) it was. Um, Same thing with the L.A. riots. Like you'll notice that the L.A. riots and when I say L.A. riots, I am thinking of like I'm thinking of the Rodney King riots of the 90s. But they only happen in really hot places because that happened, I think, in like march or something like it wasn't a typically hot it wasn't the summer um and so it happened in places like atlanta and la and then like the 
the unrest that we saw this summer when people spilled out into the streets. It was really fucking hot this summer. Um, the Watts riots in the 60s, all of, the, all of those things happened when it was extremely hot outside because people are more irritable and not even just like the people spilling out into the streets, but the police will are way more likely to show their ass, right? Like I also think of Katrina where they just like bounce or if they stayed, they got, it got real biblical. Yeah. I also wanted to talk about how I think people, they think of climate change as being like a quick thing. Often, I, maybe people are getting away from that belief, but I think a lot of people still think it is. And it's like, you'll wake up one day and like, this is climate change. And it's actually not like that at all. And so I wanted to read from a piece from 2018 that was in The Atlantic called Trump Climate Change and the Future of U.S. Democracy by Van Newkirk. The most immediate consequence of climate change won't be an abrupt entry into an alien Anthropocene hill. It's more likely to be a slow descent. Racial wealth gaps will increase. Racial health disparities will be exacerbated. Sprawling metropolises and rural hamlets alike will face steeper and steeper budgetary constraints and could be forced to rely heavily on the fees and fines to keep the lights on, a move that some cash-strapped local governments have already made and one that disproportionately affects poor or minority residents. Housing markets will continue to realign in favor of displacement and the creation of a migrant renter class. Marginalized neighborhoods will continue to shoulder a majority of the environmental burden. Trust in government will continue to decline as it proves unable to help people plan for or respond to climate effects. Elections will be disrupted by disasters. Fewer and fewer people will have real attachments to local civic life, and even the concept of a local or national shared destiny will suffer as the haves are shielded from consequences. And disasters can and will rapidly push each of these weaknesses to crisis points even as the rolling disaster of environmental change makes crises incrementally more likely every day. Hmm. This is something I think about a lot because I feel like um, this is true everywhere, but it's, I think it has the potential to be slightly more catastrophic in the U.S. because it's happening on top of a society that's never really been good at community, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I also think about this this year in particular because people are being pushed out of their homes by fires and by floods. And how are they going to vote? Where are they going to vote? Yeah. Well, and then the, the fact that they're being pushed out of their homes during a pandemic, too. It's just like, ugh, yeah. It's really remarkable how, like, as you said, this is like, this describes our world now. And this was like a, a prescient article written like two years ago. And yeah. so... It's just, it's, it's terrifying. And I think it's like, it's terrifying when we like, you know, people in the know have known and expected what we see now. And it's just mm -hmm. happening so much faster. And it's I keep thinking that too. It's happening so much faster than, than even what like, yeah, what I thought or most people, you know, I think, I don't know. I don't know why I thought it, like we had another 10, 20 years before it got like this. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, same thing. I kind of think about that too when I hear like, you know, there's this new segment of climate denial that's like, yeah, climate change is real, but it's not that bad. And it's just like, what level of 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 denial is that? Like, I don't understand how you could look at like a whole half of a continent on fire and be like, yeah, it's none of that. I once went to a like 
Heartland Institute, like, you know, climate deniers. Oh my God, you poor baby. The conference, the main conference that they do, yeah. I'm sure, okay, so you've been maybe all Yeah, yeah. And what what strikes me about it is like the way in which nobody believes the same thing. The only Mm -hmm. coherent belief is we shouldn't do anything. And like, and I think that's like, people are grappling, you know, who want to, want to hold on to that belief. I feel like they're just grappling for any sort of justification and like, oh, it's not that bad. Or, mm-hmm. oh, like there'll be some advancement. I mean, that's like, I mean, it's the new climate denial, of course, but it's yeah. just, it's interesting to see all of that, like grasping for uh, any sort of justification. And that's the only thing that could, like even possibly, I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense, but like could plausibly make sense. Right. Like, right. You can't deny it anymore. Okay, so the Heartland Institute puts on like a climate denial conference every year and it's I think Brian Kahn talked about going to this thing too. I'm never gonna go. Um, but I will tell you what I think it looks like. It looks really fucking white. Um and the food is unseasoned. And there's, yeah. there's well, everybody's wearing a red tie. There was, right, a, there, there, there was a very, definitely right on the white part, but there was a very, yeah. um, like, I feel like most conferences, like, I don't know, journalists, you can pay somehow to get food, but they had a very strict, like, uh, at least the year I went, and I only went once, and I don't think I can go back, but mm-hmm. uh, there was, like, a very strict, like, pen where journalists were, like, put in the pen, so, like, <laughs> So we didn't, I, I don't know what the food was like, is all I'm saying. Yeah. Well, how did they react to you as a Black person, though? Yeah, you know, so this is a, a this is like a whole can of worms, actually. But I, I don't think, I, uh, that I, don't, I don't think badly. And there's this interesting experience I've had, um, which is that, God, and I, and I, I, I don't know, I don't want to like say anything in particular about that this group of people versus another group of people. But I often find that when I'm in reporting in circles like that, there's almost a desire to like say, hey, we don't have any prejudice against you. Like, hey, like, it's like a, it's like a desire to like prove, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that, 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 uh, that, you know, they don't, they're not, uh, you know, against me or, or something. And so You're I-, racist? I often, yeah. Yeah. Racist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Not racist. And um, I don't know. It's an interesting reporting experience because, you know, I don't know. I've, I've been to lots of places where I've been a little nervous and find that especially people who know they're being reported on are very, very friendly. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, that I guess all of which is to say is like they were very friendly to me generally. Um, um but I, I mean, I wouldn't read too much into that. So. Yeah. Another thing to, to talk about is um, the rise of climate authoritarianism. Um, so <laughs> this is basically like strong men emerge and rule countries when, you know, everything's kind of falling apart and when the earth underneath you is basically on fire and the waters are rising. Like it's honestly not a better case for chaos than that. Um, I think of last year when Australia was on fire, remembering um, Scott Morrison basically 
trying to comfort a child saying like, I know you don't remember, but it's always been like this. There's always been fires like this. And the thing is that like, people want to believe that. That is a comforting thought. As crazy as it sounds to believe that like, it's always been on fire. Fire is normal. That is, that's actually a comforting thought as opposed to this is unprecedented and absurd and I don't know what to do. Um, and so I could see this rise of populism that we're seeing all around the world and authoritarianism all over the world turn into a rewriting of history, right? Like, will children in the future know that the climate used to be stable? This is what keeps me up at night is like, what if we enter this world where uh, that sort of messaging just wins out? And it's, I mean, and it is what it is, it's messaging, but like that mm -hmm. messaging wins out over the science and you just, you know, people just act as if all of this is normal. And mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think that's going to happen, but it is terrifying to me. Going back to what we were talking about, like um, this stuff happening a lot faster than you thought it would. Um, I, in the research for the show, came across a piece from 2016 um, by Robinson Mayer in The Atlantic called Donald Trump is the first demagogue of the Anthropocene. And Amy, I'm going to let you do the honors. Okay. Spend enough time with some of the worst case climate scenarios, and you may start to assume, as I did, that a major demagogue would contest the presidency in the next century. I'm scared already. It's too, it's too real. It's too real. Um, okay. I figured that the catastrophic consequences of planetary warming would all but ensure the necessary conditions for such a leader. And I imagined their support coming from a movement motivated by ethno-nationalism, economic stagnation, and hatred of immigrants and refugees. I pictured, in other words, something not so far from Trump 2016. I just assumed it wouldn't pop up until 2040. <sighs> Trump is, in essence, a double case, a preview of what's to come and a way to practice dealing with it. He represents a test that the leaders of a major American political party are failing, and that the electorate may only narrowly pass. He is showing us how ill-prepared the United States is for post-climate demagoguery, and he gives us an opportunity to improve our societal immune response. How might we do that? His rise also suggests a number of defense mechanisms. Obviously, the first is that climate change must be mitigated with all deliberate speed. But he also suggests certain cultural mechanisms. Some Americans may favor more restrictive immigration policies, but in order to withstand against future waves of mass migration and humanely deal with the victims of climate change, racist fears, racist fears must be unhooked from immigration restrictionism. In other words, as a matter of survival against future authoritarians, white supremacy must be rejected and defeated. Wow, this piece was really uh, prescient. Way to go, Rob. This is late October 2016, and I'm over here shedding the glory tear, which I guarantee most of our listeners won't know what the glory tear is, but Justin does. Thank you. <laughs> Should I explain it? Should I explain what that is? Go for it. Okay, so in the movie Glory, which is about Black, um, black soldiers in the Civil War, there's a scene where um, one of the one of the soldiers is whipped and flogged and he sheds one single tear. Um, it was Denzel Washington who played that part. And so anyway, that's the glory tear. I was just going to say, I mean, I, 
I feel like I probably read this piece at the time, but like, mm-hmm. yeah, I also stumbled upon it again as I was writing, uh, you know, the, the piece that we led with. And it's mm-hmm. like, he was just so on the money. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He had not won the election yet, but um, had won the primary, right? Like, remember all the, I'll eat my hat if he wins the nomination and all of those sorts of things. And somehow those same people who said that dumb shit have platforms today. It's weird. Um, But yeah, reading this, I kind of like, I got pretty emotional because it's like, what to do. This is still when everybody thought he wouldn't win. And when we thought like, okay, he's going to lose in November and then we can reassess and redo some stuff. And it just feels so... That, yeah, it reminds me of the people who are saying now, like, oh, he won't contest the election. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, he literally just said he would. I'm trying to, trying to be careful how I say this in, you know, my, like, nonpartisan way. But, like, there's a chance, like, if he loses, you know, there, there's a rebuilding that, that has to happen and, and will also have been exposed and yes. understand uh, these things in a way that I don't think we were going to understand. I agree. Way. I agree. I think that like that um, it's really shown a lot of the, um, the weaknesses in the system and also like all of the dirty underbelly that's been there all along, you know, and that, and that a certain number of people were shielded from, I think. Right. You right. know, yeah. exactly. It's also, it, it, it speaks a lot to like, we talk about, or we've talked on the show a little about a little bit about the phenomenon of climate vision, where you see natural disasters before they've happened. And what Rob is talking about here is seeing political disasters before they happen. Because I think all of us who are in this work kind of seen, kind of thought about like, what will this do to political conditions? And like what he's describing here, I relate it to so hard because he's like, I just assumed it wouldn't happen until 2040. Just like we were saying earlier about, I just didn't think the wildfires would take off like this till 2050. And I think the scientists are kind of saying that too. I didn't think we'd see a gigafire quite this early. I didn't know we were going to have that word. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just terrifying to think that we'll be looking back at I mean, I don't I don't even want to say it, but look back at 2020 and think, oh, you know. That was adorable. Those, those things were adorable. Oh, right. God. That's how I, I look at 2016. <sighs> I look back at 2016 like I didn't know how good I had it. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of curious to see, you know, what the eventual outcome of the the Australian brush fire season will be because every time anything comes up about, you know, linking extreme weather with political action, there's always people that are like, well, look at Australia. (laughs) Um, But actually, also, there was that paper recently that was um, Daniel Cohen came out with that showed that actually, there's very little link between extreme weather and political action that like, political action, surprise, surprise comes from like decades worth of organizing and not pretty much nothing else. I don't know, because like, I'm thinking about what we were saying earlier about like every major political protest that spilled out into the streets in terms of riots has been, it happened when it was hot as balls. That's true. But most of those protests didn't happen like in a flashpoint. There were, it's not like all these people were not ever, ever organizing before. America's been fucking with black people since we got here. So, you know. Yeah, it's like, you know, well, and also like a lot of the a lot of the big protest moments were organized, you know, it's not like 
yes, there was maybe some like event that sparked people to, you know, get out in the streets, but it's not like they they were totally disparate people with no previous connection to each other. You know what I mean? Like That's why the rise of authoritarianism is so incredibly disturbing because you need those like social movements to push for a change. And authoritarians are like, well, you know. Let's put those people in jail. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Throw you in the tall grass. I haven't seen this this Daniel Cohen paper, but I, I feel like a lot of the 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 research, the literature is is like often about, you know, sort of like, you know, big weather events. Like did did Hurricane Katrina move the needle? Did right, right. Hurricane Sandy? Yeah. But I feel like there's something about like, you know, I live in Washington, DC. There's just like uh, the, the, this sort of rise in like flash floods that have just been happening. And they're they're subtle, right? Like they're not national news stories and they're not mm-hmm. necessarily something that you're going to do like a, you know, an in-depth study to see if that moved the needle. But I feel like it's just like a little more abstract. It's like a little more in the background, the way in which we're all sort of feeling these sort of extreme weather uh, effects that, that maybe is influencing our understanding or, yeah. or like in, in a way that maybe is a little less, uh, is a little more difficult to study. Yeah, I would say, I think that seems right. Because it, it does seem like, okay, sure, you know, maybe it doesn't result in the immediate passing of new legislation, but like, surely that's got to build up. Yeah, there's a, another like really quick thing I wanted to touch on um, is another piece that came out in 2018 called This May Be the Most Overlooked Threat of Climate Change by Samuel Miller McDonald. I'm just going to read very quickly one paragraph. So he starts talking about um, how there was this really famous leader of the Maldives. Yeah, I remember that. He did the the like underwater press conference back in the day. Yeah. Right. And the Maldives are these islands that are most definitely going underwater. Um, they had this leader who was very committed to climate action, not just in the Maldives, but all over the world. And they, but like as things got realer, he got deposed if that's the right word, or like a coup, and thrown out of the country. And now it's ruled by this authoritarian who's like, we don't need climate action, we need development. So anyway, it says, if any lesson can be drawn from the power struggle in the Maldives, it is that people who feel threatened by an outside force, be it foreign invader or ri- foreign invaders or rising tides, often seek reassurance. That reassurance may come in the form of a strongman leader, someone who tells them all will be well, the economy will soar, the seas will... The seawalls hold. People must only surrender their elections or their due process until the crisis is resolved. This is perhaps the most overlooked threat of climate change. Major shifts in the global climate could give rise to a new generation of authoritarian rulers, not just in poorer countries or those with weak democratic institutions, but in wealthy industrialized nations too. So I think about this as I think about um, Jair Bolsonaro in um, Brazil, um, which was supposed to be on the precipice of like becoming this major global superpower or Modi in India and what's his face in England? Bojo. Yeah, that dude. Um, Boris Johnson, <laughs> the COVID survivor. Marie Le Pen in, in France. Germany, I I mean, they're having a far-right resurgence, too. Same thing in Canada. It's all over the world, this rise of 
really nasty authoritarianism and fascism. And I feel like climate is the hidden driver of a lot of that stuff. Well, when you think about like the migrant crisis and yeah. the role that, you know, a, a warmer, uh, you know, well, planet, but a warmer mm-hmm. region, like mm-hmm. how that contributed. I mean, that's, it's a pretty clear, you know, um, influencer at least. Mm-hmm. Definitely. What do you call a story that one clock tells another? Okay. Story that one clock tells another. Um, okay. Hint time. We're talking about like the type of clocks that have uh, hands. Okay. Oh. Second hand. Yes. Yeah. There you go. There you go. You got one faster than Drew Costley, who was our last guest, so you're already like killing the game here. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm, I'll take it. <laughs> I, I saw sort of the rise of Eva Morales as this like huge climate leader, right? Like in his early days. Wait, 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 back up. Tell us who about who that is. Oh, he's the he was the president of Bolivia up until It was last year. It was September of last year, September 2019. Yeah, he was the first indigenous president, but he was also someone who like you know, he was pushing for climate reparations like 15, 20 years ago. You know, he was pushing for adding rights of nature to Bolivia's constitution. He was seen as like a really like radical climate leader. And, um, you know, fast forward 15-ish years and he was was ousted by protesters. And there's some amount – I still feel like there's some amount of confusion over – you know, the various groups that wanted him out because it seems to be like a few different, a few different groups for a few different reasons. So some folks were saying that he was suppressing votes. Some folks were saying that, um, uh, you know, it was, it was his failure to take action on the fires in the Amazon. Um, but the, the net net is that he got, he got ousted (laughs) and, and now like, you know, there's there's a certain amount of instability in Bolivia, and then it's it also happens to be the country where um, you know a lot of folks are looking to for for lithium for uh, electric car batteries and and various other things, and and there's this sort of I don't know there's this whole kind of wave of colonialism playing out again. Um, anyway, long long-winded intro. I'm going to read this story from Rachel Ramirez. She wrote about this for Grist. It's The title is How Indigenous Bolivians Lost Faith in Evo Morales After the Amazon Blaze. In early September, protesters took to the streets of Bolivia demanding that Morales declare a national disaster. Some chants even went as far as calling him a, quote, murderer of nature for not taking immediate action on the fires. Most of the protesters came from indigenous groups living in and near the Amazon. According to one source who didn't want to be named for fear of retaliation for himself and his organization, many of the protesters felt betrayed by their country's first indigenous leader. 
Soon after the blazes in the Amazon came Bolivia's contested presidential election in which Morales declared victory after an unexplained pause in vote counting. Protests broke out and Brazil, the United States, and the European Union urged Bolivia to hold a runoff election, which Morales agreed to. But then the Bolivian military pushed Morales to resign due to political unrest. This is just, this. it's depressing because it's like the story of post-colonial Latin America kind of like over and over again. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Justin, do you remember this one? Yeah, well, I mean, I I do. Um, I think um, I think that I think that's the right way. I think the way that Amy put it is right. It's like it's 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 a story that sounds very familiar and um, uh, and it's sad. Yeah, it's also um, it's interesting because what he, he was replaced by someone who was pretty right wing, um, and so uh, the indigenous folks there are like, oh, wait a minute, this might not go good for us. Yeah, you're right. Like they're mad about him not doing enough about um, the environment. And it's very doubtful that this like new, very right wing government is, is going to do even as good as Morales was doing. She said extremely derogatory things about indigenous people in Bolivia. So even I, I can't imagine her saying things like that and being good for the environment. So it kind of seems like one of those cases where political instability like climate change is, is fueling political instability in the forms of the Amazon fire. And then that political instability turns around and fuels climate change in the forms of delaying climate action. And it just becomes like this. Yeah. And supporting authoritarianism. And it's like this gross circle. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So that's depressing. Well, also around that, around the same time, you know, you had the COP25 climate conference getting like bounced around a couple of countries. Oh, yeah. In in Latin America and finally kicked over to Spain, which I, again, man, colonial history just right and left. <laughs> like, I mean, well, it's also an interesting story to follow. So like it originally was supposed to be hosted in Brazil, but then Bolsonaro won the election. Bolsonaro was like, fuck your planet. Um, and then it's picked up by Chile, which I... Uh, they had these big protests, start over transit fairs, and then turned into like, you know what? We hate everything. Um, and then it was finally hosted by Madrid. And what, honestly, what gave it the most attention was that Greta Thunberg had traveled here to the Americas to be part, yeah, remember this? Um, and then was like, oh, I traveled around the world the wrong way. I got to get back to Spain. <laughs> Well, so, I mean, you bring up Greta, it's interesting. Um, so we, Greta was Times Person of the Year last year. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, it's this, we have this sort of uh, like opaque process where, you know, she's the, the person of the year is chosen by people, you know, room I'm not in. But, um, but I flagged them. I was like, hey, if we are at all considering her, she's about to get on a boat. And we're not going to have any access to her by the time our deadline comes. And so um, I wanted to go to COP25, but then we, we, we had this whole thing where I, I mean, I, I saw her the day before she left um, to go across mm -hmm. back to Spain. And we put together this issue, you know, while COP25 was going on. Um, which is really not related to this topic at all. So that was sort of my, my reflection on COP25, which was that I was doing this person of the year with Greta. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, her, she she changed her plans on a dime and and went right back across the Atlantic. That was uh, pretty remarkable, and and she made it in time for like a photo finish arriving <laughs> in Madrid. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, like did not save those talks from completely falling apart. Oh my god, I know. I kind of I really wonder like. I don't know. It just seems so it's it seems like a throwback to a different era to have cop talks still. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was I I think it like this is something I'm really curious about. Like what happens? What what is the future of of the the climate talks? And like especially in a world where we have an agreement and like countries are either doing it or they aren't like Mm -hmm. it's, it's this interesting like I'm very curious to see how they uh, continue to unfold. What did the watch say to the clock? I I really love this one. What what did the watch say to the clock? I barely could say myself. (laughs) I don't. I don't know. Now I want to know what's. Okay, I can take a hint. Is that, how are you doing? Um, how are you doing? <laughs> oh Lord. That's a stretch. <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah. I get it. Uh, okay. Fine. Yeah, we get it. All right. I want us to talk about a couple of other instances where this political instability and climate change uh, nexus is showing up because, I mean, let's be real, it's showing up in literally everything. Um, But in our two major nationwide um, disasters that are just ongoing right now, wildfires and hurricanes, it's showing up in the wildfire situation in the form of misinformation and militias just like setting up shop and holding checkpoints in places that are like on fire. Like, so they've set up roadblocks and been like, you can't come through this road until we check you. And they've got guns, they've got grenades. Like, what are you gonna do? Say no, call the police? Like, there's nothing you can do. You have to comply with it. And there's been all these like accounts of journalists of color, in particular from Oregon, um, being like, we had to like comply with them. We had to let them take our pictures, the pictures of our car, the pictures of our license plate. Um, And they're also claiming that they're responding to these rumors that Antifa are setting the fires or that Sierra Club is setting the fires. Um, And it's just, yeah, it's, it's disturbing. Yeah. Cause in some cases they are really, uh, slowing down evacuations. And then also the thing that's really disturbing to me, this is actually the the rabbit hole I went down uh, the other day because I was looking into the... On Facebook. On Facebook, yes. Because I was looking into this Facebook group that started like the first week of September and already has like 15,000 members that's all 
conspiracy theorists who think that Sierra, like Sierra Club people started the West Coast fires. <laughs> and it would be funny if it wasn't dangerous. Uh, so it is. And it's also just, um, I don't know, the thing that always gets me when I spend any amount of time in, in um, places like that is that um, people are, it's not just like, yes, there's, disin- there's disinformation, but um, for it to be effective, it has to be coupled with like, this lack of trust of mainstream media and this, you know, kind of brainwashing mostly by Trump and his administration that like, you can only listen to what they're saying about things. And it's weird. It's like, even people that these folks would usually listen to, like the police, the police were saying this is not true. Antifa did not start these fires. Sierra Club people did not start these fires. And all these people in this group were like, mm, I don't know. Not sure I buy that. You know, <laughs> I'm just like, uh, I don't. Yeah, I, I, I really don't think we can overstate how dangerous it is to have all of this stuff happening on top of this massive disinformation system. Yeah. I guess what I also wondered about is like how these militias were so quickly able to mobilize and insert themselves. Um, And of course there's going to be, um, you know, first responders are responding to the fires, right? Of course they are. Um, And so that leaves a vacuum for these militias to set up Um, and they're ready for that. They've been training for this. They've been waiting for this moment. Um, and we do ourselves a disservice to act like that's not a real thing. So they like capitalize on the chaos. They capitalize on the fear and how much people are willing to give up when everything feels uncertain. Um, and yeah, that's, I, I actually worry about these militias kind of co-opting the language of defund the police and community policing and being like, we're the community police now. Oh, very much. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, they're quite organized. They've legit been organizing since the last Civil War. Exactly. Like, I'm going to sound like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat, but are you? Maybe. (laughs) There are like, you know, there are like, you know, organizations and whatever that that like send out these bat signals to these groups too. You know, like we, um, we got a tip and then I saw a story about it a couple weeks later about, you know, this whole operation that was trying to get armed, like, former Navy SEALs and Green Berets to go, um, quote-unquote, guard the poles in Minnesota. (laughs) It's like these, I don't know, and there again, it's like these people really believe that they're protecting something. I don't know. It's very, it's very warped. One thing that I was struck reading about uh the reporting you know of the attempt to kidnap governor whitmer yeah in michigan yeah is how much of the reporting was like talking you know the the sort of neighbor reporting and people were saying the comment was like something like uh well yeah of course i I knew he was in a militia everybody's in a militia but i didn't know he was gonna (laughs) do this and i was yeah my response is like wait pause Everybody's in a militia. <laughs> like, Holy shit! Wow. Um, uh, yeah. So it's it's I it's like a very uh, this 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 sort of intersection is fascinating to me. Yeah. Everybody's in a militia. The thing is, like, what scares me is that I feel like that's kind of true. 
um, to people in a certain world. Like everybody's in a militia because everybody's looking for safety. Also, in addition to the wildfire um, situation, there's also the hurricanes down on the Gulf Coast mostly this year. I haven't heard about a lot of them on the Atlantic Coast. Um, but anyway, um, I was reading the story about Lafayette, Louisiana, which refused to shelter um, evacuees from Hurricane Laura because they felt like um, there were outside agitators coming in to support Black Lives Matter because there had recently been a shooting of an unarmed black man in Lafayette. Well, actually, he was not unarmed. He had a knife, but that still was no reason to shoot him 11 times. Um, and so there have been all of these protests about it. Um, and they didn't want to welcome anyone else into their city because they were like, well, these are outside agitators. These are not our people. And there were like all of these sort of communications in the wake of the protest being like, don't get involved. These are not our people on both sides. Right. Um, and so, yeah, when the hurricane came, they were just like, we're not accepting anybody. They told all their civil services to like shut down and they were like, well, people are going to have to go a little bit further, but that's fine. We have to protect our other people and it would be irresponsible to welcome them into our city. Here's the thing about Lafayette. Lafayette is one of the biggest cities that you could potentially go to to be out of harm's way. Lafayette is like 100,000 people, which ain't small in Louisiana. And so for them to be like, yeah, we're not taking anybody is like, well, where are they supposed to go exactly? Who else has the infrastructure to take them? It, I just I just think about, you know, I, we, we were you read we read a, a, an excerpt from uh, the story about the Maldives and I and. It's, it's just crazy to me the way in which we see what's happening, like the, the ability to otherize so quickly. I mean, this is like, mm. this is, we've otherized places like small island nations and we've otherized like people uh, coming from Central America. And like, just this, this really like struck me because it's, it's, it's crazy. Like, again, this is like one of those things that I imagined happening, you know, mm -hmm decades down the road, you know, you can see how we, we, I say we, but like how, you know, people, uh, people uh, mm -hmm. might otherize other Americans who are moving for, you know, climate reasons. But I mean, just that it's happening right now is it's, right. mean, it's just so scary to me, but yeah. 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 Because this is exactly what you were talking about in your article about people are more likely to be distrustful of outsiders. Um, and this is from, like, not even outside the state, <laughs> you know? Yep. What happens when you annoy a clock? Uh, it... Alarms, it run, it uh, it rings. Uh, what what's another sound a, a clock makes? Ticks? It's ticked clock. off. No. Yep. It gets ticked off. I got yes. it. Yes. yes, you got it. Wow. You got it. I think you've officially gotten more than any guest ever, Justin. You have. You totally have. <laughs> I got two. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, the last thing we wanted to talk to you about, Justin, is the Supreme Court nominee. The bad Amy. The bad Amy. (laughs) Amy Coney Barrett. There's a lot of bad Amys out there this year. And as a good Amy, I just want to say. Yeah, no, y'all aren't having a good year. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cut it out, Amys. (laughs) Anyway, so Amy Coney Barrett, the confirmation hearing started today. And... She showed up with, you know, a bunch of kids. <laughs> I, I will never not find it weird that, like, politicians are like, way to go having so many kids. Um, anyway, so uh, there's been quite a bit of discussion about what her confirmation might mean for climate. And Justin, I know you wrote about this, so we wanted to have you read from, um, from this. Just a short excerpt here. Um, It's called Trump's Supreme Court pick could stop climate measures. Climate change wasn't included in the original mandate of the EPA, and Congress has never explicitly told the agent to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. But as global warming science grew increasingly alarming, the agency was forced to incorporate reducing greenhouse gas emissions into its mandate. Troubled by the federal government's inaction, a group of states led by Massachusetts sued the EPA in 2006 to demand the agency act to reduce emissions. The following year, the Supreme Court ruled in a 5-4 decision known as Massachusetts versus EPA that the agency needed to regulate greenhouse gas emissions if EPA scientists found they endangered public health. The court's decision meant that combating climate change was effectively a responsibility of the executive branch. Do you want to explain a little bit about why Amy Coney Barrett's nomination could unravel Massachusetts versus EPA? Well, essentially, you know, as I say in this 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 excerpt, Massachusetts versus EPA was a five four decision um, with uh, Justice Kennedy in the majority. So, you know, right now there seems to be like very likely to be a clear. Um, uh, Conservative majority. Uh, conservative majority that would uh, that could unravel this decision. And what Massachusetts versus EPA is is like it gives the EPA the authority to regulate climate change. So basically, uh, you know, she could effectively say, no, the EPA doesn't have the authority to uh, to to regulate climate change, or could really narrow the ability of. Um, the EPA to do that. And I, and I mean, there's a few different principles at play. There's, you know, um, Chevron deference, which gives the agency significant authority to interpret uh, the law. So, you know, in this case, EPA can really say the Clean Air Act gives us a lot of ability to regulate climate change. And that's something that, you know, conservatives are traditionally skeptical of. And there's also this sort of new not new, it's, a, it's an old principle, the non-delegation principle, but hasn't really been applied. Um, but it's something that, uh, you know, uh, conservatives, uh, uh, you know, subscribe to, which is this idea that Congress can't say, you know, EPA needs to deal with climate change um, and EPA can figure it out. Uh, the, the non-delegation principle says, no, Congress can't actually tell the EPA to do something without really specific instructions. Um, Mm -hmm. so this is like really wonky, but like the sum of it is like, basically the Supreme court can say, a, 
you can't, the EPA can't use uh, the existing law to regulate climate change. And B, even if Congress tries to enact new laws that tell EPA to regulate uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, they maybe can't do that either. So it's like a, it's a really troubling reality for climate policymakers because like it, it, it's very difficult for Congress to come up with the exact like way in which greenhouse gas emissions would be regulated. Like that's not like, that's not what Congress does. So right. that was a really rambly way to explain like a wonky thing, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a big, uh, she could unravel the whole basis for climate policy. Although, you know, I was looking at this and I was thinking, cause I've followed these climate liability cases for so long. And the big thing that always comes up with those and, and the, the basic argument with those is that, you know, climate change causes damage and it creates costs for counties and cities and states. And therefore the companies that have acted to, in a sense, delay action on climate should be responsible for some of those costs, right? So a lot of these, like the first batch of these cases, you know, came 12, 13 years ago, they were filed in federal court and they were kicked out of federal court because, you know, the the Supreme Court basically said the Clean Air Act preempts these. Well, if, um, you know, if the federal government is is going to say, actually, we're not regulating climate change, then I feel like it does open it up for the states to do stuff. So I don't know. Then it makes me, I'm like, hmm, what will they do? Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like we're just, yeah, we're in this sort of very interesting moment where things could go so many different ways. And I think the fact these liability cases are you know not necessarily a federal matter like does open up you know a lot of potential it's it's really interesting i i thought that the the conservative court had actually turned out to be a little bit more progressive on climate than we had thought they were going to be right it's more that like so far at least just looking at Kavanaugh and Gorsuch they are um, if they have to choose between corporate rights and states' rights, they're like bigger advocates of state rights so far than corporate rights. But uh, Amy Coney Barrett, her record speaks to she just, you know, rules on the side of corporations pretty consistently. So that would be that would be slightly different. Um, and and let's be clear here. Like, we don't have that many decisions of Gorsuch and, and Kavanaugh's to really say one way or the other which way they would go. But, um, but yeah. The Supreme Court is kind of the only thing holding our democracy together at this point. Hey. The courts in general, man, they're working overtime right now. <laughs> yeah, and they may be deciding this election, unfortunately. So... I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what reassuring thing to add to that sentence. Well, I would just, I was interested. I mean, the kicker to my story is like, you know, it's a a law professor saying, well, there's other ways to deal with the Supreme Court, assuming that the, uh, you know, Democrats win in November. And maybe that's what's necessary for climate policy. Um, A lot of people have been saying that. You mean in terms of like, you know, adding justices? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Ugh, what a mess. What a mess. Well, thank you, Justin, for joining us and for spending so much time talking to us. We appreciate it. Happy to. And I got some good practice with the puns, so. You think so? What what do uh, lawyers wear to court? 
Uh, what are lawyers worth a court? Um, ooh, I don't know. You now I'm second guessing myself. What do, <laughs> what do they wear? A lawsuit. A lawsuit. Oh, that was easy. That was easy. Oh. oh man. No, this was great, Justin. Thank you so much. No, th- oh, thank you. Glad, glad to happy to do it. Thank you so much to Justin for joining us on the show today. You can and should follow him on Twitter at Justin Warland. That's W-O-R-L-A-N-D. And follow his reporting over at Time. Right. And he also has a newsletter, which you can find over in his pinned tweet on the Twitter machine. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Real Hot Take. I am at Mary Hegler. And Amy is at Amy Westervelt. That's right. And like we said earlier, you should subscribe to our newsletter. We're doing great stuff over there. Everything from movie reviews to original reporting, climate grief essays. Yeah. We've also got cocktail recipes and we've been doing um, like virtual debate watch parties, Mm -hmm. um, which have been the only thing kind of keeping me together. Yeah. During this process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we have drinking games. It's a lot of fun because, you know, we're all social distancing. So that means we can't be in a bar together. Yeah. We also, Twitter can be a little bit too public sometimes. So if you mm-hmm. want some community, this debate thread is a great place to be. So we have a premium version with all of the fun features for as little as $7 a month or $80 a year. Or if you really love us, you can sign up for a founding membership. And you get a free t-shirt with that founding membership. Oh, right. But we understand that, uh, I know, yeah, it's a great deal when you think about it. Mm -hmm. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Pretty sweet. Um, But we understand that not everyone can do that right now, and we don't want the most important story of our time locked behind a paywall. So we produce a free newsletter too that has a roundup of weekly coverage and a free feature from us, plus teasers for all the good stuff in the premium newsletter. Right. And we have merchandise now. We've got hats. We've got shirts. We've got mugs. we got even more. Um, if you've gotten your shirts or whatever, please send us pictures. If you haven't, be patient. We're sending it. Everything is slow these days, but we promise it's in the mail. Yes, it is in the mail. I just... Every single thing that's been ordered has been mailed now. It's very exciting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. We love all of that stuff. Okay. That's it for this episode. If you've got questions about the general theme of this episode or ideas for other themes you want to see us tackle or just thoughts on your day, send them to hot takes at criticalfrequency.org. That's hot takes plural at criticalfrequency.org. Right. And make sure, again, to leave us a rating or review on iTunes. If you have a negative review, please send them to Khan at earther.com. That's Brian, B-R-I-A-N dot K-A-H-N at earther.com. That's right. Okay. Talk to you next time. Bye.